The country of Jordan sits at the crossroads of the Middle East, but as Janine Jervis tells us, Jordan is safe and peaceful despite its noisy neighbors. They are very well known as the peacemakers and an oasis in, in this rough neighborhood. Theodore Seuss Geisel, best known as Dr. Seuss, wore many hats beyond a children's book author and illustrator. He was also a social commentator, and his work tackled many issues like racial inequality and the environment. He really kind of evolves and starts to write wonderful books about how ridiculous discrimination is. Filmmaker Ken Burns has been sharing America's history for over 30 years, and he's uncovering new stories every day. If we were given a thousand years to live, we wouldn't run out of projects in American history. We'll cross the border into Jordan, uncover Dr. Seuss's social and artistic legacies, and share our own best of features with filmmaker Ken Burns. Just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Filmmaker Ken Burns has shared a variety of America's history through his popular documentary films, including Baseball, The Central Park Five, the Civil War, and the Roosevelt's. His style of filmmaking incorporates archival footage and photographs to help craft America's stories. As part of our Best Of interviews, we have gone into our archives to share our 2009 interview with Ken Burns. As he prepared to shine a light on America's treasured national parks, we'll revisit history later in the hour. Also coming up on World Footprints, we will uncover the many hats of Theodore Seuss Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. It turns out that Dr. Seuss did more than entertain children with his colorful characters, like the Lorax and the Grinch. He also used his art to poke fun at socialites, tackle social issues, and contemplate life. As we'll hear from Bill Dreyer, curator of the art of Dr. Seuss, his art was both timely and timeless, and can often be seen hanging in fine galleries in the company of 20th century masters. That's just ahead. But first, not every Middle Eastern country is created equal. Although the country of Jordan is surrounded by turmoil, it maintains a Swiss-like neutrality in the region, making it the safest country in the Middle East. The spirit of hospitality that is ingrained in Bedouin culture transcends throughout the country. Janine Jervis from the Jordan Tourism Board tells us that Jordan is an open-air museum that's full of history and archaeological treasures, but that the country is very cosmopolitan with diverse tourism offerings. Janine, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you, Tanya. It feels good to be here. So Jordan is, has been described as being in the crossroads of the Middle East. Where exactly is it located? Well, other than being in a noisy neighborhood, um, Jordan is situated in the middle of the Middle East, so bordering Israel, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. Um, and Egypt on, along the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. That's and, what you meant by noisy. <laughs> yes, so very noisy neighborhood. Right. But it's a, it's known as the Switzerland of the Middle East, is what we like to, to call it. Now, the history goes very, very deep, as many countries, certainly in the Middle East. Give us a, a glimpse into the beginning of Jordan's existence. As you know, Jordan is an open-air museum, and it goes back to Roman times, Greeks. The Greeks were once there. It goes back to the Neolithic period, Byzantine periods. So, you know, you walk through Jordan, and it's literally walking through history. From north to south, the country actually has over 30,000 historic archaeological sites registered. So you have Roman ruins, 
like Jarash, for example, that's called Pompeii of the Middle East, that has both Roman and Greek influence. Of course, Jordan's iconic gem, Petra, dating back to the Nabataeans over 2,000 years ago. The Nabataean people built carved Petra out of sandstone rock, best well known from Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. um, the Last Crusade. And then you have Crusader castles. You have the days of the Crusaders, Majloon in the north, and then Karak Castle. So, you know, Jordan's scattered with many different historical significances from um, up to 10,000 years ago. Like you'll be hiking through Finan, for example, and there's a 10,000-year-old church situated right in the backcountry along Bedouin routes, for example, Bedouin trails. Janine, you've mentioned a lot of the influences from some of the other empires on buildings and architecture in Jordan. How about food and other cultural traditions in the country? Talk about how the Bedouins and some of these other influences have have played on Jordanian culture today. The indigenous people of Jordan are the Bedouin people, and they're famed for their hospitality and their culture. The Bedouin hospitality is as such where, you know, any traveler that is passing through, they welcome into their home. And, you know, they don't ask any questions. They're just welcoming you into their home. They feed you. They let you sleep there. No questions asked. And this is kind of the root and base, I would say, of the, of the culture today for Jordanian people, which is why they are very well known as the peacemakers and an oasis in, in this rough neighborhood. So I think that's a testament to the base of their culture is, is based on the, the Bedouin traditions. But then again, Jordan has also now become a melting pot because, of course, you have the influx of some of the refugees from Syria and, and Palestine and Iraq as well. And so there are a lot of influences from these other countries as well. It kind of is like a melting pot and a blend now when you go to Jordan of um, these different cultures from the influx of the different people that have come through or seek refuge in Jordan. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are exploring the country of Jordan with Janine Jervis from Visit Jordan. There's a spirit of hospitality and cooperation throughout the country, and even Pope Benedict recognized this during his 2009 visit to the country when he described Jordan as a model of Christian and Muslim coexistence. We have more information about the country of Jordan on our website at worldfootprints.com. Now, you know, speaking of refugees, I know Jordan has welcomed some Syrian refugees. How is that impacting tourism and just the overall economic well-being of the country? Well, of course, needless to say, it definitely does have quite an impact because Jordan is a small country and it doesn't have any oil. Tourism is Jordan's oil. Tourism is about 12 to 14 percent of the GDP, and it's Jordan's largest export industry and foreign currency earner. Mind you, the U.S. market is actually our largest inbound market into Jordan, but it has definitely impacted the economic situation, especially with tourism. Unfortunately, for example, a few hotels have closed in Petra, um, but aside from that, the biggest impact, I think, for Jordan is the misperception of 
of travel to Jordan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's business as usual in Jordan for locals and for visitors alike. People are still coming and visiting Jordan, um, enjoying the sights. Actually, now is the time to come because then you go to Petra and you kind of have Petra to yourself, you know. It's an, impacted it because the media, the sensational media puts out a lot of negatives about the region and, and Jordan's lumped into one. Right, and, and that's something that we've spoken about before. People tend to lump all Middle Eastern countries together. And exactly. Jordan, I know, is considered to be the safest Middle Eastern country, safest Arab country. What I would say, too, is a testament to Jordan as a, a safe haven then, is the fact that it's home to all these refugees now. And as much as Jordan has had to open its doors to people from all over within this crisis, they've still been able to maintain a normal, everyday living without any issues. Now, Jordan's had a very long tradition of Christian and Muslim coexistence. What explains the spirit of cooperation? Well, Jordan has about 3 to 5% of its population are Christians. Um, and Jordan is the bulk of the Old Testament. And, you know, you can walk through Amman, for example, and there is a church and a mosque that sits right next to each other. You know, so when there's a call to prayer, you have the church bells ringing at the same time, and everybody's going about their merry way. You know, Jordan is a is a, a place of tolerance. They believe in every person's right to religious freedom, mm-hmm. and um, that goes back to, of course, King Hussein and and of course the current King Abdullah. You know, they're very open-minded, very liberal leaders, and the, the hospitality culture of Jordan kind of lends to that coexistence as well. Everybody practices what they believe in and and allows others to do the same. Speaking of the Christian-Muslim coexistence, in his 2009 visit to Jordan, Pope Benedict actually cited that Jordan was a model for the Christian-Muslim relationship. And I think that speaks very highly of the atmosphere, the culture within Jordan, and the spirit of cooperation and and hospitality that you mentioned earlier. Yes, that is correct. You know, Jordan is also home to traditional pilgrimage locations and authentic holy sites. Bethany beyond the Jordan, for example, the baptism site where it's uh, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and I believe that was made a pilgrimage or recognized as one of the pilgrimage locations by the Pope. Also, Pope Francis visited last year. So it's an interfaith harmony hub because of this biblical history. And also the hospitality and the friendliness of the people, like we had said earlier, Mm -hmm. um, kind of lent for this coexistence. Many people may be surprised, I know I was, to learn that there are biblical, important biblical attractions, areas in other countries. I mean, most people think of one country as uh, a holy land, but, you know, you think about it, back in the day, there were no no borders. That's right, and uh, Jordan itself uh, has a lot of significant uh, 
places that are part of the Holy Land, the broader Holy Land that crosses these national boundaries. Mm -hmm. What I hope we do, or we have a chance to do when we visit Jordan, is not only do a biblical tour and see some of these holy sites, but also have an authentic Bedouin experience. I would love to stay with a Bedouin family in their their encampment, in their, their tent, and just immerse ourselves in the culture. And see firsthand what this hospitality is all about. We've covered a lot of the historical and architectural sites such as Petra, but Jordan also has developed quite a reputation for wine culture, for eco adventure, and even spa and wellness. Talk to some of the other things that visitors can enjoy visiting Jordan. So Jordan is a very diverse country in the sense that because of the terrain of the country as well, Jordan runs along the Great Rift Valley, so it has it's very mountainous and it has many gorges and canyons that have water flowing through it. People think Jordan is just a desert country, but it's very diverse. In the northern part of Jordan, it's green and lush, and that's where you'd find some of the eco-nature routes and, and hiking trails and eco-lodges that are coming about. And as you go south, it becomes more desert, and the the climate and the terrain changes as you go from north to south in Jordan. Jordan is a famous place also for bird watching, as well as canyoneering, rock climbing in the Wadi Rum Desert. Wadi Rum, which is my favorite place in Jordan, actually, does lend for a lot of adventure activities as well. You can camp overnight with the Bedouins and get an experience, local, authentic, experiential time in Jordan. Um, on the eco side... Uh, Jordan is very much very much working on their eco-nature aspect of tourism. So in the northern part, because it's lush and green, they have many hiking trails, walking trails. They have two eco-lodges, I believe, in the north, one in Ajloun and one in Azraq. That Azraq is more on the eastern side of the desert. As you go south in the desert area, there's an area called Finan. And what's cool about that area in Finan is... There is an eco-lodge that was revamped recently in, in the last six years or so, six to seven years, um, called the Finan Eco-Lodge. And what's cool about there is, the, is that the Finan area is where the Bedouin, some of the Bedouin traditions still exist in Jordan, truly exist, where, where they live in tents and they still do their farming and um, herding of their goats and sheep, etc. And the lodge is run by the Bedouins in that community. And so they have a very good program there where it's, it's very sustainable for the area, for the community. Mm-hmm. All the proceeds um, from the, the lodge go to these families. And all the services provided at the lodge, the guiding, the food, is all locally sourced, as well as provided by the local Bedouins. There's a woman in one of the families that provides all the bread, the shrap bread for meals for any all the guests. And then you have the woman that makes the candle lights that light up the lodge because the, the lodge is run on the solar power and at night is lit by candlelight. So it's a very sustainable program and they're 
they're building little pro sustainable programs just similar to the FINAN model throughout the country, and those are still under the development. That is so much up our alley, Janine. And I want to ask you in the last minute that we have left, what are some of the more popular international festivals that take place in Jordan throughout the year? One of the major festivals that happens every year is the Jarash Festival. Um, that usually happens in the summer around July, and it runs for a month long where they have different themes on different nights and different performers from local performers as well as performers from within the Arab world, within the Middle East region. It's an annual festival, and it's been going on for quite a number of years, and that is one of the festivals that does draw international artists and musicians that do come and perform. In our last few seconds, what do you want listeners to understand about Jordan? I would say, first of all, that Jordan is a very diverse place. When people think of Jordan, they think Petra first, or they think that that's all that Jordan has as an attraction. Petra is Jordan's number one icon and gem, but there is so much more to see in Jordan. Jordan needs at least a week to scratch the surface on what it has to offer. It's a destination for all discerning travelers, and it is certainly worth giving some time. And just know that Jordanians are waiting with open arms to welcome all visitors to their country. They're very proud, very proud of their country, of their culture, and are very happy when visitors come to host and show them um, what they have to be proud about. Well, Janine, you have certainly whetted our appetite for Jordan, and we, Ian and I, look forward to, to visiting the country one day. But in the interim, we thank you so much for sharing Jordan with us. For more information on Jordan, go to visitjordan.com. chapter in my Oxnard story if we should visit your wonderful destination. Oxnard is the breakaway from Los Angeles. We're located just one hour up the coast from the Los Angeles area. But the minute you come over the grade, which is the hill that you have to cross, um, you're in a different world. You're suddenly in this lovely agricultural area with rolling fields of fresh vegetables and strawberries interspersed with developments of the city of Oxnard leading you to the ocean and some of the most beautiful beaches in California. So your whole world changes when you come over that grade. You leave behind the frenetic energy of the major metropolitan area and go back to a quieter, gentler, more nature-based point of view.
head, you have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know. And you are the guy who'll decide where to go. That rhythmic poem is one of many not-so-famous works from Theodore Geisel, best known as Dr. Seuss. We all remember the Lorax, the Grinch, and the Cat in the Hat, but Dr. Seuss wore many hats. Not only was he a famous children's book author, he was also a painter, taxidermist, and social commentator. As Bill Dreyer, curator of the art of Dr. Seuss, tells us, Ted Geisel's life, like his art, was impactful. Bill, welcome back to World Footprints. Great to be here. So nice to talk with you again. There are a lot of sides, as we as we learned from our last chat. There are a lot of sides to Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss. He was a fine artist. He's an author, illustrator, poet, taxidermist, and a social commentator. I mean, this gentleman had many faces. And he wore many hats. His career spans so many different areas of his life in the world. You think about the, the areas you've mentioned, and of course, if you go back early in time, he was uh, an advertiser. His career began hmm. as an editorial cartoonist in the 1920s, and that early cartoon made it possible for him to land an advertising job because he made fun of a bug spray called Flit. Flit? Flit bug spray, F-L-I-T, <laughs> and the advertisers thought his lampooning of their product was so funny that they hired him to do the ad campaign, which he did for almost 15 years. Wow. One of the things that surprised us, and I'm sure will surprise many of our audience members, is his life as a social commentator. I mean, he tackled a lot of social issues like racial inequality, the economy, environment, and these are still issues that we still struggle with today. But Back in his time, they were very provocative. How was his art, or the use of his art, raising awareness about these social issues perceived? Well, I think it was controversial, as you've alluded to. And if you go back into the 1930s and 40s, he was one of the first editorialists who was actually speaking out against some of the practices during World War II. They were not including Negro or Jewish uh, help at that time, and a couple of cartoons were actually created by Ted Geisel to speak out against that. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have to realize that just prior to that, Ted Geisel also has many cartoons that he created that today would be considered racist. They, of course, are of the day, and when they are reviewed in the context of 1920s or 1930s, they are exactly in line with what the other editorialists are doing at that time. Ted Geisel, though, advances beyond that, and he actually realizes that something isn't quite right with the depiction of people in stereotypical ways. And as you mentioned, Tanya, he really kind of evolves and starts to write wonderful books about how ridiculous discrimination is. Now, Ted was a prolific traveler, and many of his works were inspired by his travels abroad. How did other cultures and the issues going on in some of those countries influence his work? I think that everything he came into contact with, whether it was another culture, whether it was another language, I think that he was a cultural sponge, and he really absorbed things from 
his entire life, and he reflected it back through his artwork. One of the books he wrote, uh, Horton Hears a Who, is about the post-war World War II time frame, particularly in Japan. And when you think about uh, that element uh, of time, it was when the Japanese were just coming into the idea that the person was as important as possibly the culture. So that idea that a person's a person, no matter how small, became a central element of that book. And he also dedicated that book to a Japanese professor who became good friends with him. It's interesting to, to see that the, the international uh, influence in his books, but really the literary influences, they come from everywhere, and they could come from anywhere, really. I'll give you an example of a particular artwork called Worm Burning Bright in the Forest in the Night. This artwork is one where he brings two very distinct cultural influences into the artwork. The literary inspiration comes from William Blake's probably most famous poem, The Tiger, which has the first sentence, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. So that is the influence on his title of his artwork, Worm Burning Bright in the Forest of the Night. But the artistic influence he pulls from Jackson Pollock. In this artwork, it's his only drip painting artwork. Uh, and Ted Geisel tries his hand at various genres of art throughout his career. And this is the only one that has the drip painting that was made famous by Jackson Pollock, and in fact, the artwork, Worm Burning Bright, was created just two years after Jackson Pollock's 1967 Museum of Modern Art exhibition. And we suspect that Ted Geisel, who traveled to New York every year, and as I mentioned, was a cultural sponge, he probably saw that artwork. Now, what was it about covering social issues, particularly controversial social issues for Ted back in the day that allowed him to transition into becoming a children's book author? Well, I don't think that was what got him into becoming a children's book author. It was actually something much more commercial. As I mentioned, he was doing cartoons, and he was illustrating commercially on various projects, and he illustrated a couple of books very early on in the 1920s, early 1930s, and he realized that if he illustrated the book, he made a couple hundred dollars, but if you wrote the book, you made the lion's share of the money. So he decided, for commercial purposes, I will go ahead and write the book and I'll illustrate hmm. the book. To answer your question, Ian, as he goes on, he does start to deliver and finesse these morals into his books, and he couches them in very playful, ingenious ways. And then, of course, everyone knows about the Lorax, which was written to address environmental issues. And another one I remember you telling us about, the Sneetches, which addressed intolerance. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Seuss said that the Lorax book, it was his favorite book of his. Hmm. The second thing is that that was as close to straight propaganda as he got. And he struggled with that book because every time he was working on it, he felt like it was moralizing too hard. And one of the things that he does brilliantly is that he doesn't hit you over the head with a bat with his moral. He really ingeniously slips it into his book. And he worked so hard to try and get that right. He couldn't get it right. He couldn't get it right. Now we're going back to Ian's comment about international influence. Ted Geisel was on uh, vacation in Africa with his wife, Audrey, relaxing at some hotel near the jungle. 
and he was watching a horde of elephants, and that might not be the proper word, but <laughs> he was watching a bunch of elephants walking out of the forest and back into the woods. It just came to him, and he grabbed a piece of paper, and he started to write the book, the ending of the Lorax. It just all came out, and it was completed that afternoon uh, in a way that did not overly moralize the story of trying to protect our natural resources. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to Bill Dreyer, curator of The Art of Dr. Seuss. Bill says that the cross between the surrealist and child doodle art that Dr. Seuss created was provocative and uniquely timeless. It's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. Is a quote from Dr. Seuss's book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. In his unique way, Dr. Seuss taught us about traveling and following dreams. There's more fun ahead as we explore the life and legacy of Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss, just ahead on World Footprints Radio. to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll go into our treasured archives to share our interview with filmmaker Ken Burns, which aired during the initial release of his PBS broadcast, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. But in a moment, we'll continue our conversation with Bill Dreyer, curator of the art of Dr. Seuss. We have a link to the virtual gallery of Dr. Seuss's art on our website at worldfootprints.com. Buxom, Bixby, or Bray, or Mordecai, Ali, Van Allen, O'Shea. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. Art imitated life for Dr. Seuss. From his unorthodox taxidermy and paintings to his poetry and illustrations, Bill Dreyer tells us that Ted Geisel's view of the world is reflected in his works. I have to ask about one of my favorite characters and whether my assessment of this character is accurate, the Grinch. I love the Grinch. He is my all-time favorite Dr. Seuss character, and I think the reason why I love him so much, not only is he lovingly ornery, but he also reflects redemption. Is there a hidden message there, or is that just my interpretation of the Grinch? I think you are very close to the interpretation of that book. In fact, uh, the Grinch is Dr. Seuss. It's Ted Geisel. Hmm. It is his alter ego. And if you want proof of that, you go to the book and you read the page that the Grinch says, why, for 53 years I put up with it now. I must stop this Christmas from coming, but how? Ted Geisel was 53 years old when he wrote that book. The Grinch is 53 years old. They are the same person. And that book came out of the concept that the over-commercialization of the holiday, which is Christmas, 
just got to Ted Geisel after years and years and years, and he sat down and wrote a book about it. However, he says that the Grinch has been misinterpreted over time. And can't people see that the Grinch in my story is the hero of Christmas? Sure, he starts out as the bad guy, but it's not how you start out that matters. It's who you are at the end. Yes. And at the end, he finds redemption. And Tanya, you're absolutely correct. That is the story of the Grinch. How did his latest book that was published posthumously come to be? What pet should I get? How did that happen? Well, one of the, the joys that I have in, in my career is that I get to go to the Dr. Seuss house and research the original artworks. Just to give you a little bit of background about the collection, Ted Geisel had been painting at night for his own personal enjoyment all through his life. But he did not exhibit or show those artworks. Mm -hmm. It was really only close friends or family that knew about that. And when he got to the end of his life, he told his wife, Audrey Geisel, at that time, that when he was gone, he wanted her to share the artworks with the world. And she did that by creating this collection of authorized limited editions. Those are used for museum exhibition and private collection at galleries. And it's a treasure trove of hidden works that we're able to bring out to the art world. In the same way, these hidden or lost books that eventually became the newly published book called What Pet Should I Get? Mm -hmm. Those had been moved out of the Seuss house several years ago when they were renovating the home. And they forgot about them. And only a few years ago, they brought those boxes of materials that had been moved out of the house back to the home. They started to go through it, and lo and behold, they discovered that there was a completed book, a huge discovery in the world of Dr. Seuss. And this is what's called the secret art of Dr. Seuss. Yes, that you're referring to, or is that another treasure trove of, of paintings? That is exactly what has become known as the secret art of Dr. Seuss, because Five years after Ted Geisel passed away, Mrs. Audrey Geisel published a book titled The Secret Art of Dr. Seuss. Now, Ted called these his midnight paintings because he, as somewhat of a workaholic, would work all day long and oftentimes into the evening on his commercial projects, his books, all the things he had going on in his career. What was Ted's fascination with taxidermy? To me, this is the gem of the collection in his 60 years of creativity as an artist. You go back to the early 1930s, and he was receiving horns and beaks and antlers and shells from deceased animals at the local zoo where he lived in Springfield, Massachusetts. His father was the superintendent of the zoo, so Ted got to go to the zoos quite a bit as a kid and then all through his life later on as well. But those animal parts, which his father brought home and gave to him, were kept in a box until he moved to New York City. And in the early 1930s, he took those animal parts and he decided he would recreate what he thought those animals would want to be reincarnated as. He then takes their animal parts, creates a full taxidermy sculpture, and then puts these wonderful and wacky Seussian names to them, like the blue-green Abelard, the goo-goo-eyed Tasmanian Wolgast, 
the Anthony Drexel Goldfarb, mm-hmm. uh, and Fawn. So, I mean, really, it's a wonderful, wonderful collection. And I should mention that all of the original artworks that these limited editions are based on are still in the house or archived at University of California, San Diego. The originals, of course, are priceless. They'll never be made available or put out there. But the originals that I get to go and see in the home have this wonderful crackling and patina on them. They're 80, 90 years old. And so we have the, the, the joy and the pleasure of being able to steward those artworks into the art world as beautifully crafted artworks. Speaking of beautifully crafted artworks, Bill, one of my favorite paintings is Prayer for a Child. And I know that there's a poem that accompanies that painting. Can you tell us a little bit about the painting and share the poem with us? Sure. And I think this speaks volumes about how Ted Geisel worked. When asked, you know, which came first, his writing or the artwork, he said, my writing and my artwork are the yin and yang of Dr. Seuss. Together they create a progeny greater than the individual elements. And in this particular artwork, Tanya, that you're mentioning, uh, A Prayer for a Child is this wonderful artwork of the world. It's the earth. You see the earth there with just one home and one tree next to the earth. And it's kind of a child's perspective. The child doesn't think of millions and millions of people. They really think of their own little place on earth. And beyond Earth, you see this galactic view of the universe with planets and all sorts of different beautiful visions throughout the universe. And the poem that goes with it, it goes like this. From here on Earth, from my small place, I ask of you, way out in space, please tell all men in every land what you and I both understand. Please tell all men that peace is good. That's all that need be understood. In every world, in your great sky, We understand, both you and I. And I think that's beautiful and just a wonderful way to end our conversation with you right now. Bill, thank you so much for for joining us again and sharing with us the timeless artwork of Dr. Seuss, Ted Seuss Geisel. Thank you, Tanya and Ian. Great to be with you. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we are exploring the life and legacy of Dr. Seuss. If we were writing the first chapter of our San Juan Island story, what would that be? Well, I would say we're most well-known for our watchable wildlife. Um, Probably most well-known for killer whales, so we have, or orca whales. We have uh, resident pods of orca whales um, and other groups of whales of year-round. We also have minke whales and humpback whales in the summer. So instead of going to a park, you can actually see the animals in the wild. You can also see them from shore. And we have a whale museum which is dedicated to the stewardship of whales and marine mammals rather than their exploitation. So families can come and learn about the the animals and then see them. We also have more bald eagles, nesting bald eagles than any other county in the United States and we were just made a national monument by President Obama. 
For more than three decades, filmmaker Ken Burns has produced some of the most critically acclaimed and highly anticipated documentaries for public television. His passion has been history, whether investigating the history of cancer and scientific breakthroughs or America's national parks, slavery or former first family, Ken Burns has been called the most influential documentarian of our time. We sat down with Ken in 2009 as PBS prepared to broadcast his film, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Why was it important to tell this story of our national parks? Well, I think they're a uniquely American institution, and I've focused all of my professional life the last 35 years in trying to understand us a little bit better and to use history to do so. So this is the first time in history land was set aside not for the pleasure of the very rich or kings, but for everybody and for all time. It, it is an utterly American invention. And sometimes we forget that, and sometimes we're unaware of the story behind the parks. We usually focus on travelogues and nature films to, to tell their stories, when in fact the history of the individuals and ideas that made this institution possible uh, were the source of great uh, fascination for me and my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And speaking of stories, this project took... 10 years of research and six years of filming in the America National Parks. What were some of the, the, the surprising stories that you uncovered in your research? Well, I, I think that the surprises for us are sort of in three different categories. One is just no matter what you think, they're more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. And mm-hmm. the variety of the beauty is so stunning that every day was just a, an amazing revelation. Number two, we were really surprised at the diversity, the naturally occurring diversity of the story. That is to say, it isn't just the familiar figures of the parks, Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir, though they are important and central to our film, but it's a story of people from every conceivable background. So you have a possibility to connect with almost every kind of American with this story, with pride and with enthusiasm for a story that is as complicated as the country. And then I think third, and perhaps most important, we were unprepared for the emotional power of the parks. Mm. One that we interviewed who could help us understand John Muir or George Melendez Wright, the first uh, Hispanic uh, biologist of the park and the first biologist for the National Park Service, mm-hmm. said to us they needed also to communicate some life-changing moment they had in the parks, a moment where the parks rearranged their molecules, where it was mm. important to say who they'd visited it with, as well as what the spectacular scenery was. And we began to realize that for many Americans who enjoy the parks, and for those who look forward to it, there's a kind of emotional growth that takes place there, that somehow out in wild nature, you have this opportunity to see things a little bit clearer than the rest of civilization provides, and that we were unprepared. And and if we have to admit to ourselves, every one of us who worked on the film had, out in the parks, our own kind of personal transformation. Hmm. This project took 10 years of research. I'm interested in, in finding out how the project itself evolved during that span of time. It's a um, a logistical question, first of all. Mm-hmm. That's why it took so long, so much longer than any other project. We had to film from the gates of the Arctic in northern Alaska to the dry Tortugas off the Florida coast from the Hawaii volcanoes um, out in those remote islands to Acadia National Park where the first rays of sunlight 
strike the United States every day and everywhere in between. So that's going to take time. We also are not just doing that travelogue, as I say, but trying mm-hmm. to intertwine and interbraid dozens and dozens of stories. We introduce you to 60 folks during the course of the six-part, 12-hour series and how to figure out which stories to tell, what stories not to tell, what stories you consciously had to leave out. All of that required a great deal of planning. And then, as you suggest, having been unprepared in the beginning to understand how just powerfully emotional the story of the parks is, we then had to pepper our narrative with these uh, moments that Mm -hmm. seemed so anxious to communicate to it, whether it's the African-American ranger Shelton Johnson talking about transcendental experiences with Mm -hmm. Buffalo out in Yellowstone, his first park service job, or whether it's someone else describing a family trip there that turned them into the historian and later the parks expert that they would uh, turn out to be, uh, were just amazing. And so, uh, as as you know, our, our film, and I think that's why it was so hugely successful, why the book is on the Times bestseller list, why the DVDs are flying out of the store, I think it's because people say, yeah, I had that too. This is where I had the experience of my mom and my dad, my sister and my brother, my kids in a new way, outside of the normal routines of life where we got to know each other in deep and meaningful ways. Plus, we connected to everyone else and we felt this kind of patriotism along with Mm -hmm. sometimes spiritual, uh, religious feelings that that many people have. Yeah, and and Ian and I can certainly relate to, to the spirituality and how just being in the midst of that greatness... Changes you. Yeah, it it does. And and for me, what I loved when we were in Glacier National Park, we had absolutely no cell phone connectivity or Internet. And so I really got to leave everything behind and and just focus on life. As we live increasingly, and particularly our children in a virtual world, Mm -hmm. in which nothing is really actually real, Mm -hmm. we find that the parks are the great rechargers of our soul, our batteries. Yes. Now, going back to some of the the missions that actually evolved or perhaps evolved during the making of this series, I know one of your focuses was to give some ownership to ethnic minorities with the parks to, to kind of highlight the role that minorities have played in the growth and development of our national parks. And I was very happy to see a fellow Michiganian, uh, Sheldon Johnson, uh, showcased on on your show. Well, you know what? We didn't actually go out with that intention. What we did is we found that the mm-hmm. stories of the national parks are as diverse as the country. So we could suddenly show, go to any part of the country and show people there heroes of the national parks that look and sounded like them. It was no politically correct sort of investigation on our part, but rather just a stunning celebration of of how each individual park, if you lift up the rock and examine the story of how it got into being, involved Mm -hmm. a person or a group of people who fell in love with the place and sacrificed their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor to save it. And we also were mindful of the fact that there were many populations in the United States, often African-American or Hispanic-American or Native American, who do not yet feel an ownership of the national parks, that co-ownership that all of us have. And we were thrilled to be able to add to our outreach the visit to dozens of places that permitted us to say, hey, look, 
let me introduce you to the Buffalo Soldiers, these African-American cavalrymen who in the first mm-hmm. 20th century were Yosemite and Sequoia's first protectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let me show you the story of George Melendez Wright, who helped really change the Park Service's understanding of what the relationship to wildlife was. Let me tell you about the son of a slave, Lancelot Jones, who refused to sell his islands off Miami to a developer who wanted to turn them into the next Key Biscayne or Miami Beach in Biscayne Bay National Park. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're sharing one of our best of best interviews with filmmaker Ken Burns. America has produced everything from Jeffersonian democracy to the civil rights movement, uh, the Model T to the Boeing 707. And some might question whether the national parks being America's best ideas hyperbole. What would you say to someone who may think that? Well, you know, that's perfectly legitimate. We realize that that um, subtitle is a is a provocative thing to get people to uh-huh. think. And in fact, when we presented Within the first five minutes, we, we cite the historian and, and writer Wallace Stegner who said that it was the best idea we've ever had. Mm-hmm. And almost immediately someone comes on and says, that's not the best idea. The best idea comes from Thomas Jefferson. I think our argument, and I think we've got a pretty good proof of it throughout the 12 hours, is that it, once you establish a country based on those Jeffersonian principles, you'd be hard-pressed to find an idea that was better than the mm-hmm. national parks. And while, of course, the history of the United States are many, many glories, this is the tangibility of what makes us cohere. When we sing, my country, tis of thee, we are not talking about trade statistics or mining records or even the lofty skyscrapers of our metropolises. We're talking about the land, and this is the only place where the land has been saved as it once was, that you can look in the national parks at places that John Muir saw 150 years ago, and it looks exactly the way he saw it. And you can also realize that you could have gone back you know, 10,000 years and seen it exactly the way the ancestors of the native peoples who occupied that land saw it. And there is nothing that you can say that about in America. Now, how do you think we should balance the need to expose more people to the parks, which your series is, I think, doing a wonderful job of, and providing greater access to the parks with preserving the natural environment? Is there any concern about preserving the natural echo balance of the park with increased tourism? Yeah, you know, at the heart of democracy itself are a lot of paradoxes. At the heart of the national parks is a paradox, that they're meant to be preserved for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, but also kept unimpaired for future generations. And those two things run into each other in exactly the way you've described. But these are healthy problems to have in a democracy. The real problem would be if there are no constituents for the parks, and then they become susceptible to the projects that nibble away at the edges, that put the dam in, that, that ruin the ecosystem. You know, the first director of the Park Service fielded lots of complaints that as visitations began to rise, there are people leaving their tin cans. He said, so what? We can pick up the tin cans. We're making good citizens. And I sort of agree with that. I I know Mm -hmm. we have a chapter in our sixth episode called Love to Death, and that was the great worry as the attendance skyrocketed through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, there was a problem of traffic jams and pollution and, you know, garbage dumps and lines at the bathrooms and all of that sort of stuff. But 
people were using the parks. And in Zion, just to take one example, the beautiful valley got so clogged with traffic that people finally just said, okay, no more cars. And there was a little bit of protest, and everybody mm-hmm. just parks in the parking lot at the visitor center and takes a clean bus up into this pristine canyon where you can now see the return of wildlife. And it's a spectacular thing. So each each problem also requires democratic solutions. And as I said, the worst problem is if nobody can. To view the collection of films by Ken Burns, visit KenBurns.com. about you, dear, but I really have a taste. Uh, I'm very, very intrigued about Jordan, and I'm looking forward to our visit next year. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Jordan, it is a very progressive country, as uh, Janine shared, and the Bedouin culture, which is a culture I'm very interested in and would love to learn more about, they make up 40% of the, the population and their culture towards hospitality is very pervasive. But one of the things we didn't talk about is medical tourism. Mm. Jordan has been a huge medical tourist destination since the 1970s. A lot of their market coming from the uh, ex-Soviet Union, um, America, for sure. But it, it continues to grow to this day. I think that might be of interest to a number of our audience members, many of whom have embarked on medical tourism excursions. And one of the things about Jordan uh, that we really didn't get into in our conversation with Janine is just the close ties between the United States and Jordan. Uh, First and foremost, uh, Queen Noor, who is formerly Lisa Hallaby of of Washington, D.C., her dad, uh, Najib Halaby, was a longtime uh, executive with uh, Pan American Airways uh, when she was growing up. And I had the good fortune to meet him a long, long time ago when I was an intern working in aviation planning here in Washington and got to know him through the efforts to build a rail out to Dulles, which, which is happening now. It is. Here we are in 2015, and his vision is finally coming forth. Uh, and it will be there in a few years or so. And uh, Queen Noor herself has a background in urban planning and architecture, uh, having gone to Princeton. And that was uh, one of the things that uh, attracted uh, uh, the late King Hussein to her because of her vision, her care for the environment. And- Another interesting thought with regards to Dr. Seuss, you know, jumping ahead to the other interview, one of the thoughts I had with respect to his what he calls unorthodox taxidermy is you know he has these sculptures on the wall many of them made with the real parts of dead animals and i thought just today i thought that's a more humane way if someone desires that much to have the head of an animal hanging on their wall why not 
a sculpture from Dr. Seuss, which depicts an animal. It may not be a realistic-looking animal. It may have, you know, 16 horns versus, you know, <laughs> two. Um, but it, you know, with but it was made with, they're made with um, animal parts. Uh, and that is more humane than going off to a country like Zimbabwe or Namibia or South Africa where there's a lot of poaching going on. It's more humane display of an animal head on one's wall, in my humble opinion. And this social consciousness that we've seen with uh, Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss, we also see that in Ken Burns as we go back into the archives to 2009 that Ken really uh, takes social commentary about what was wrong in America and illuminates that in his films to really get us to the heart of some of the issues that divided this country, but yet at the same time created opportunities to make it great. And it was great to hear that once again and have Ken remind us of just the important role that even government, which is so maligned nowadays in our political discourse, has done some great things for this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has four films in production, and one that I'm very looking forward to, Ernest Hemingway. I love Ernest Hemingway. Some of my travels have followed in his footsteps, and so I am anticipating uh, the release of that film. As we like to do with the close of every show, is provide a quote. I think it's apropos that um, we share one from Dr. Seuss. Oh, the places you'll go, there is fun to be done. There are points to be scored, there are games to be won. And the magical things you can do with that ball will make you the winningest winner of all. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.